The, um, you know, during the last several weeks, uh, each teacher is, um, and it's kind of awkward, the screen's over there, so you'll have to, do you all mind passing him the thing there? So, well, good morning, everybody. So glad uh, you're all here. Uh, our last uh, session of this term, a um, little bit sad about that. I won't know what to do on Sunday for several weeks. <laughs> until uh, Sunday morning, at least, until May. I'm teaching, by the way, with Brandon Bennett, who was in here um, early on, uh, our young adult and college minister who taught the lesson on, uh, the, the, on the nature of God. He and I are teaching a six- or seven-part um, uh, course, and I forget what we're calling it, but kind of looking at um, our current culture and the church's place in it right now, um, taking an honest look at you know, what the, the winds of culture are uh, in the 21st century. So if that's something that interests you, I think we're starting in, in May and it goes through June. Um, but anyway, today um, is our final lesson. We're taking a look at the Anglican Church Traditions uh, uh, liturgy. Um, and each session I've asked the teacher to book in, uh, bring in a book recommendation or maybe two. And uh, we've been keeping tabs on what those titles are. So I've put them on a sheet for you. Uh, not all these titles, but some of them are available in our bookstore. There's a shelf there that says Inquirer's Adult Confirmation. Um, if you want to pick any up, if they're not available there, they're all easily available online. Uh, I'll pass uh, one stack that way and one stack this way. Um, if you're here with your spouse, maybe just take one copy. Um, and... Uh, so that's just for your edification. Um, if there's a particular topic that interests you or that um, you felt like you wanted to learn more about, these are good resources to explore. And you might consider exploring them uh, with someone else. Uh, um, and along those lines, uh, all along here during this term, we've had shepherds. And I think most of them are in the room uh, today. Um, can you all just uh, stand up and introduce yourselves real quickly? Well, again, one last time, our shepherds. We'll be friends soon. Okay, yeah. I'm Andy Webb. Heather McCauley. Winston McCauley. Stephen Gray. Is that it? Um, <clears throat> if if uh, you'd like to get to know um, another shepherd. Another shepherd walking in is Miriam. You want to introduce yourself? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, these might be folks who might be interested in, in uh, maintaining a relationship with you, especially if there's a book on here that you're interested in reading and exploring, or maybe the Bible, consider that, um, uh, et cetera. Uh, and any housekeeping about uh, confirmation yes. and yes. other things? A lot of fun stuff. Um, have the luncheon on April 30th. I'll receive the invitation. And then this is your confirmation packet. <coughs> the, <coughs> excuse me. I have the, the same thing um, this morning. The pink sheet, um, and if you all already know what you want to do, you're welcome to go ahead and fill out the pink sheet and give it to me. Um, I did a lot of research this week, and Matt, is it already going? correct me if anything I say is wrong. Um, all right, this is my understanding. If you look on the other side of the pink sheet, if you have been, well, first of all, you need to be baptized to be confirmed. So if you've not been baptized, contact one of the men, yeah, contact Matt. Um, 
And then uh, to be for, for confirmation, if you were if you have confessed your faith publicly, meaning you have been either confirmed in any other um, denomination, or if you were baptized, if you were Baptist and you're baptized as an adult, then you can be received. Um, we changed our policy since last Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I told you one thing, and we did some research, and uh, that's what we found out. You're right. And so what you, it's my understanding, again, <laughs> this is all new thing. Um, you're not, you cannot be baptized, that, you cannot be baptized twice. That's the sacrament. But you can be confirmed twice. And so I spoke to our dean about this because it was really getting it straight in my head. It took me at least a week, and as you can tell, I'm still trying to get it straight. Um, one of the things he suggested is to look at these prayers on the bottom of the hot pink sheet. And you know, Zach is in here, and he's a liturgy guy, so he really can help me out if this is incorrect. Um, and if one of those prayers for confirmation, reception, or reaffirmation, you know, I would suggest praying about it. Um, and if one of those seemed to really stand out as one you want the bishop to pray over you on May the 7th, then put that one down. Um, and then as far as a sponsor, our shepherds are here. We like to have, it's not absolutely required that you have a sponsor, but I think it's important to have a member of our church be standing up there with you when the bishop prays over you. And then they can pray with you throughout this time leading up to this and even afterwards. And so if you don't know, many of you are very new to the church, and if you don't know anybody, I did ask as many of the shepherds as could come, that have been here periodically during this semester to come today and ask one of them to be your sponsor. Um, and then the blue sheet, if you have filled uh, that form online for me already, you do not need to fill out the blue sheet. Um, that just gives the church more detailed information of what we need to put in our system. And by the way, Fontana and I will be there at Confirmation Sunday. Oh, yeah. Last ditch effort, we're, we're presenting all of you. So you don't have somebody. Uh, Wait, here. Yeah. Um, we'll be up there anyway. And that's great to know. So whether you do confirmation, reception, or reaffirmation, we will consider you a confirmed member. Are you following me? So regardless of what you end up doing, um, uh, we'll recognize any previous adult affirm public affirmation of faith. Um, and the newcomers luncheon, you want to plug that real quick? That will be the week before we'll have rehearsal for confirmation, April the 30th, which will be the week before confirmation. So that will be during the, this hour. And then at 12.15, so if you're used to going to the 9 o'clock or even 7.30, um, kind of plan on going to the 11 o'clock that day because we would like for all of you to attend the newcomers, the inquirers luncheon at 12:15, and that will be um, Matt will give a little history about the Advent, and then Andrew will give um, uh, the vision of the church and where he sees us going. And you'll also have the pleasure of meeting the first year vestry class, um, as well as the senior warden and junior warden and the stewardship chair. So if you can, please make plans to come and attend that. Great. Well, I don't want to take up any more time. Uh, excited <coughs> to have Zach in here. Uh, many of you come from uh, other uh, traditions, and the way we do worship here might be uh, new to you or um, completely foreign. So that's why we do this lesson on uh, 
worship in the prayer book tradition, not as a defense for why we do it, but just to explain to you uh, what's going on. Before we do that, I'm bringing in a college um, that we pray usually um, toward the end of the liturgical year in, say, November uh, or so. That's about scripture. Um, and uh, the, one of the lines in here that is undoubtedly marked on so many people's minds is to uh, inwardly digest scripture. And I think litur the liturgy and the prayer book tradition helps us to do that. So let's pray. <laughs> Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So, oh my gosh, I think um, this is going to sound... Some of you are not going to like this because it's... The humor is a little bit too much, but in Matt's, what Matt just said, I had this image, the inward digestion thing. Okay, you can see where this is going. Um, there's this moment in the, the Angry Birds movie, okay? Angry Birds movie, that's how we're doing this. Um, I was watching it with my kids, and it's a really funny moment when this mom is feeding her babies, and you know how birds feed their babies? They inwardly digest and then reproduce them for the babies to eat, and so the babies all kind of came forward because they were going to school and, and uh, mom said, hey kids, come get your lunch. And they all lined up. They opened up their bags and she just threw up into them. And the next kid threw up into them, threw up into them. This is going to be a strange image, but I think I'm going to use this in future prayer book classes, okay? I think the prayer book is inwardly digested scripture re-given for the people of God for easier apprehension of the word of God. As weird as that is, it's like ABC food. It's already been chewed. And it's a weird way for us to digest the scripture. So think of the mother hem. And uh, okay, that's landing totally flat. But anyway, um, I actually think it's a really interesting. I'm going to tease that out a little bit. That's going to be a blog post or an article or something. Um, I want to talk about worship in the prayer book tradition a little bit. I'm Zach Hicks. I haven't, I haven't met a lot of you yet. I've met some of you, so uh, I hope to interact with you. My office is always open. Uh, I have a wife. I have four kids. You'll see them running around. They're usually at the end of any worship service, the one sort of terrorizing the nave or at the worship space, wherever they are. You'll find them four blonde-headed kids running around doing things they shouldn't be. That's usually my children. Um, I want to talk and move forward into kind of talking about the prayer book tradition a little bit. I think I just pressed the blackout button, which I didn't want to do. There we go. <clears throat> um, and I want to breeze through this, so hopefully we have time for questions. I realized in the past that I've tried to pack this with too many things. Hopefully it doesn't feel like a barrage. Worship in the prayer book tradition is a bunch of things. It's verbal uh, in the sense that it's awfully wordy, right? You've got a lot of words flying at you. It's tactile in the sense that you and I, uh, in a day and age where we've got phones and screens where images... And words even vanish from our eyes. One of the things that we're really committed to is actually a really earthy worship experience where you've got a physical worship space with lots of things that you can look at and a, a real um, order of service, whether it be in the prayer book or in our leaflets that you can feel with your fingers and hands. In a day and age when those things aren't there, we're pretty committed to a tactile experience. It's physical. Your body is moving. 
You're doing things with your body and those positions of your body are purposeful. Um, there's real meaning behind why we, we don't just stand and sit and do the up-down thing that always gets criticized about feeling like it's disjunctive. And I talk a lot about that in the prayer book class, but there's meaning. There's real meaning behind it. And you can use those opportunities to feel what is being said and spoken in that moment in worship as you stand, sit, kneel, all those kinds of things. It is definitely scriptural. It's estimated that the prayer book, in its, especially in its original composition, but even now, about two-thirds of it are direct quotations of or allusions to scripture. And so that's what I mean when I say the prayer book is like regurgitated scripture in a way that we can actually pray it to God. I think one of the beautiful things about worship in the prayer book tradition is that even the words we employ to praise God and to pray to Him are gifts of God Himself. It's the Scripture. So not only does God reveal who He is, but then He gives us the very words to respond. So that's, I mean, that's huge. That's really huge. It's definitely historic. Uh, A lot of our liturgy is connected to some of the earliest church's worship forms and structures and even words associated with it, especially the communion liturgy is very old. But even morning prayer that we use elsewhere uh, is connected. And one of the things in our day and age when in postmodernism, there's there's a general sense in which we don't feel connected. We don't feel like we have roots. Uh, one of the beauties of the prayer book tradition is that all of a sudden you're connected to prayers and a liturgy that allows you to worship with Christians who have been using those same words in years past, hundreds of years past, thousands of years past. And so it's more than just a history lesson. It's actually what our creed calls experiencing in real time the communion of the saints. That means not only the communion of saints across the world now, but the communion of saints across the world throughout time. So there's almost like a three-dimensionality to the way that we're connected to the church when we engage the liturgy, which is pretty awesome that we uh, connect with the church broader than who we see. Like today we prayed because just this morning, um, uh, you heard, some of you may have heard that two churches in Egypt were bombed by terrorists and 25 of our brothers and sisters in the Lord died. Another 60 were injured. And I'm not sure whether he's injured or dead, but one of the bishop of the Coptic church was in one of those two buildings. And so the communion of saints takes on a whole new weightiness when we realize that our brothers and sisters are dying and grieving over there and there's ever more persecution, right? And so being connected to something historic means that we're connected to that. Um, And as I already alluded to, it's gracious in the sense of the main thrust of the prayer book and the main thrust of this liturgy isn't for us to have some sort of awesome aesthetic experience. It's so that God can communicate His grace to us through that. And so if you're walking away from worship and your response is, what a beautiful liturgy or what a, what a, be- what a beautiful choral anthem or isn't, wasn't the choir great or even wasn't the preacher fabulous? You've missed the point. It has nothing to do with that. In fact, those are vehicles so that you can walk out of worship and say, isn't Jesus beautiful? Isn't he a glorious savior? That's the goal. It's not to have some sort of curated, awesome museum type experience where we can walk away and feel good about our aesthetics. God forbid. God forbid. We hope that by the power of his Holy Spirit that we walk away saying, 
I saw Jesus and I'm changed again. You know, Jesus and his grace spoke to me. All right. It's powerful in that because it is a gracious word and it's trying to communicate the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto, unto salvation. This liturgy is full of that and therefore full of the Holy Spirit and full of power. Two things today. We're going to go over the history and the theology of it. I want to blast through these dates here. Um, not for memorizing, but almost like little touch points so that you can see some of the evolution. But in 1549, English speakers for the first time in the history of humanity had worship services in their mother tongue. Never before. They'd had it in parts. They'd had it in their private devotions. But when they came to church, they never had worship in English before 1549 wholesale. That prayer book that was established in 1549 was the beginning of the prayer book that you and I use today. So the very first English worship period is, is connected to this. In 1552, Thomas Cranmer, who helped architect along with some other English reformers, that initial prayer book of 1549, they felt like it was a stopgap toward moving toward a more robust Protestant gospel-centered theology, that 1549 book was. And so in 1552, in short order, because they had a Protestant king and could roll some of these things out now, they rolled out the second English prayer book. Um, and that in many ways was the kind of Protestant reformational gold standard. In 1662, after a brief hiatus where the prayer book, because of infighting in the Church of England, was made illegal, it was reestablished in 1662, and it was largely reinstated in its 1552 form. The reason I throw around these dates, by the way, is that people who, are, uh, who have been in the Anglican tradition for a while will often talk about prayer books with regards to their year. And their year is tethered to something related to their theology and their uh, significance. So some people will mention, you'll hear mentioned around here, 1552 and 1662. That's why I bring these up is only to kind of give a little bit of a touch point for you. In 1798, you can see that date is very close to 1776, right? So once the uh, American Anglican Church was founded, and uh, United States of America was founded in itself. In short order, the Protestant Episcopal Church, which is the expression of Anglicanism in the United States, uh, ratified its first prayer book in 1798. In 1928 was a significant major American revision of the prayer book. Many people who are older Episcopalians who have been in the church a while will tell you about this because they remember it. Because prior to 1979, this was the prayer book that they were used to using, all right? And then finally, in 1979, a most recent uh, revision of our prayer book. What I'd say generally about prayer books and revision is that after 1552, every revision was not only practical in the sense of trying to make the prayer book a little bit more connected to its new generation that was asso associated with it, it was also theological. There were theological revisions, meaning there were things that were changed and moved about that. And I would say in general, one of the things that Advent wrestles with is that nearly every revision from 1552, but especially from 1662, 
has been a revision that has either in a little bit or in a large way has moved away from the clarity of being able to hear the gospel and added back in or tweaked some things that are not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but as I would summarize, make the gospel harder to hear. And because we're committed to that gospel at Advent, it's one of the reasons why we actually are connecting in our worship with earlier forms of the liturgy. It's not just some commitment to be older for old sake. It's actually our commitment to the gospel that drives us to connecting with earlier forms of the prayer book. And if you have questions, write them down and we'll, uh, we'll hopefully address them at the end. Um, it's a book, the prayer book. If you, ha- if you buy a book of common prayer today, This is what it contains. All kinds of worship services, Sunday worship services, daily services for you to kind of go through privately or with your families, weddings and funerals, of course, baptisms, ordinations, and more. It's a book filled with these things so that the church has liturgies and faithful words to be able to speak to God. Um, There are service options that the Episcopal Church give as as options for Sunday morning worship in the Anglican Communion. And they're basically three. They're Holy Communion, morning prayer, and evening prayer. Those are different liturgies that serve the same function, all right? And this is getting at explaining how Advent sort of breaks it up so that you know. (coughs) Holy Communion is described in the prayer book as kind of the principal liturgy of the church. But for hundreds of years in the Anglican Communion, morning prayer has also been a principal liturgy of the church. Um, so we have three liturgies to uh, grab and choose from, depending on whether it's morning or evening, and certainly for Holy Communion. And with each of those liturgies, there are two options in our prayer book, because when the 79 rolled out, it rolled out what was called Rite 1, and Rite just means a, a liturgy or a way of, a way of doing it, a, a worship service. So worship service option one, and Rite 2, worship service option two. Um, The Episcopal Church and those in the Episcopal Church have long identified themselves now based on whether they're a right one or right two church. Why? Because in right one and right two, there's definite theological implications for each of those rights. We'll generally say that right one sticks a little bit closer to the historic expression of the gospel in the worship service, which is why Advent is uh, utilizes right one both in its Holy Communion and morning prayer services and evening prayer, uh, especially at five o'clock as well. But that hopefully explains in a nutshell uh, why we do what we do. At Advent, we rotate Holy Communion and morning prayer at our 9 and 11 services. 7.30 is always Holy Communion, mostly according to the 1928 prayer book. Um, and then 9 and, a, 9 and 11 will swap Holy Communion and morning prayer every week in and out. Uh, in order to connect our folks with both those wonderful liturgies. The theology, the heart of the theology of the prayer book, I will tell you, is the heart of the theology of the Protestant Reformation. Not every Anglican in the 21st century agrees with that statement. Uh, But when you go back to the founders of the prayer book and the architects, it is, I'll just say it's unassailable. People have tried to revisionist history, the person Thomas Cranmer, uh, it can't be done. And uh, one can say we want new streams of Anglicanism to go in different directions in the Protestant Reformation. And that's fine. But what can't be said is that the original prayer books were designed apart from a Protestant vision 
Why do I say Protestant? Mostly because, again, when we read the Bible and hear about the gospel, it was in the Protestant Reformation that they became very concerned that that gospel in the worship service was really clear. And so to kind of tease that out a little bit, the central question being asked in the Reformation was, how are people changed? The church was answering that question largely in this way at the time. People are changed by conforming to outward rituals and practices that ultimately make them the kinds of people that God will give his grace to. That was the answer of medieval Christianity largely at the time. The Protestant reformers read the Bible and came up with a different conclusion. They saw that people are changed not by conformity to outward, but by a work of God in the heart. All right? And how does God do this work? He does this work through His Word, particularly through the Gospel. All right? It was the recovery of this central insight that overhauled people's faith and people's ability to know who God was and how to be changed, right? So the driving force behind the Reformation and therefore the driving force behind a Reformation understanding of worship can be summarized in this statement. The Word of God births faith. I don't muster up faith within myself and give it to God and then God in response gives me His grace. But the Word of God comes at me. It is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And when it comes at me, It opens me up and tells me I need something that I don't have within me. And then it declares to me this word, Jesus died for you. And all of a sudden, I hear those words, Lazarus, come out. You are called by name. Your chains fell off. Your heart was free. And you rose, went forth and followed him. And Jesus said, when you had those bandages on you, unbind that woman, unbind that man. That is the way the Word of God works. You see, dead people can't do anything. Dead people cannot muster up anything. Dead people are dead. And until a miraculous work from outside of that dead person comes in, they ain't doing squat. All right? And so the Reformation insight recovered in the Scriptures is that it's the Word of God that says, Lazarus, come out of the dead. Come out of the grave. It's that which births faith. Gives you the Holy Spirit gives you life to see Jesus, all right? And so the prayer book is committed to this. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a diagram before I tease out a few implications for ways that you can hear the liturgy and then we'll have some questions. This looks like keep calm and carry on. I know. I designed it and then realized, holy cow, it's very English of me to do it this way, right? All hail uh, Winston, Winston Churchill, right? What? What? Keep calm, God is with us. All right. So the, the idea in diagram form is God's word comes down to us and from us, therefore, comes faith, faithful expression back to him. I want to illustrate pretty quickly the way this works again and again in our liturgy. And if this is appetizing to you, go back and listen to my four week prayer book class that I taught in the dean's class just a few weeks ago. And you'll get this with a little bit more specificity for our morning prayer and uh and Holy Communion liturgies. But if the Word of God births faith, you're going to see this pattern come at us again and again in the liturgy. It's why our liturgy feels cyclical. Why does it feel up and down? Because it's always going back to the very mechanism that actually has the power to resurrect and birth faith in us, which is the Word of God declared, 
causes me to respond and never the reverse, never the reverse. All right. So, for instance, when we're in morning prayer or uh, when we're in Holy Communion, we have this scripture cycle of songs or, or sorry, of uh, scripture passages read an Old Testament reading or an epistle, then a psalm and then a New Testament reading with some songs intermingled where there's kind of short responses in between. But after that whole cycle is done, does anyone recall what happens at that moment after the word of God has been read? What do we do after that whole cycle is done? Not yet, but that's another one. We confess something else. Our faith in the creed. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it powerful that the only thing that allows me to be able to say, I believe, I have faith in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is the word of God that comes to us. That's just one instance where the living and active word is attempting to pull faith out of you and birth it in you. How about this? What do we do? What's the next congregational act right after the sermon? Always. <coughs> yes, the offering. Why? Why would we have an offering after a sermon? Because we're not paying in for God's grace, right? God's grace comes to us like a lightning bolt of forgiveness and joy and power from the cross. That's what's preached in the sermon, right? It's a life-giving word. And out of that, we say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. It's why the offering plates come from the people and go all the way up to the table. Why? Because it's not Jesus sacrificed again up at that altar in Holy Communion. It is you and me who offer ourselves as living sacrifices. That's the theology of Paul in Romans 12 at play in our liturgy. The word of God comes down, births faith, and we respond by saying, I offer Myself to you, O oh God, in the offering. Isn't that powerful? So I never want you to just think that I'm giving money and those silver plates are just doing stuff up there. I want you to imagine, as grotesque as this is, that your body is laid out at the top of that table every week, ready to be utilized and opened up for the sake of God's glory Monday through Saturday. That's the end of the service right there, is when you say, all things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. Meaning, everything I have is from you anyway, so take it all. Monday through Saturday, all right? How about this one? Here we go. The word of God, after we confess our sins, declares forgiveness to us. What happens right after that moment in our morning prayer liturgy is this little liturgical line. Open thou our lips and our mouths shall show forth thy praise. And then we sing a hymn. Why? Because alive people sing, right? Dead people can't sing. But alive people made alive by the word of God, saying, your sins are pardoned again and again, right now, by the blood of Jesus Christ. No condemnation. When a sinner hears that, how can you keep from singing, right? So, open thou our lips, which is an interesting quote from Psalm 51, a psalm of confession, where after confessing his sin, says, open my lips and my mouth shall show, show forth thy praise. And the goal is here, you are made alive. Now sing to Jesus, all right? Declaration of, in, in the Holy Communion liturgy, the same moment when we have this 
assurance of pardon, this declaration of forgiveness, and then you hear these what are called comfortable words, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is a true and trustworthy saying that Jesus Christ came into the world to say, are you like starting to feel alive in this moment? That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with God the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he's the propitiation for our sins. And so what happens right after that moment? The peace of the Lord. Be all, all of a sudden, as testimonies have said, when I understood that I was forgiven in Christ, I felt a peace. I felt my heart strangely warmed, as John Wesley said. And interestingly, it's the one moment in worship where we're actually told to greet one another. So instead of this robotic, peace, 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 peace. What if we really viewed that as an opportunity? Because here's the implications and the outflow and the fruit of the gospel. Not only does it bring me peace with God, which is faith, but in the Reformation understanding, it also means a horizontal love. Because I'm reconciled with God, I can be reconciled with my fellow brothers and sisters. It's a visual, physical embodiment of that reality. All of a sudden, I realize there are other human beings too who have been reconciled to God with whom I can say, God's peace be upon you. And it's a small embodiment of what faith looks like on the ground, horizontally, Monday through Saturday, in loving our neighbor. We're totally freed up. The accounts are settled with God. And we have a surplus of love to overflow and give to our neighbor. That's what your vocation is. Your Monday through Saturday is nothing more than you extending your love to others through your vocation. Whatever your job is, lawyer, painter, candlestick maker, whatever, whatever you do, that's that. Because of that, right? Vertical and horizontal, powerful. All right, final one. We have these prayers, this series of prayers in morning morning prayer. The Lord's Prayer and the Suffrages, all right? That, that happened. The Suffrages is that back and forth. Uh, oh Lord, how does it begin? I know, I know. Uh, and show us and grant us thy salvation. It's that kind of back and forth. Let the let not the hope of the poor be taken away, right? All that all that stuff. Those are all passages and quotes from Scripture. And so the Lord's prayer and suffrages give way as the Word of God comes down to our own prayers, humanly crafted prayers, and the collects and the intercessions. The intercessions are those very personal prayers that we pray for our church body and the church worldwide, right? But you see how it's always the Word of God comes down, and faith responds its way. Oh, I have one more. All right. Isn't this so fun? Communion. I mean, don't you like the graphics, guys? Come on. (coughs) Communion. The word of God comes to us in communion, which is why you should pay attention to the words that the minister says and the chalice bearer says when they say to you, take and eat this in remembrance that Jesus died for you. Feed on him in your hearts by faith. Take this in remembrance that Christ died for you. That's the word of God coming at you in a personal way through a human vehicle. But don't miss it. It's God's word being declared to you what is your state and existence, which is at peace with God and that Jesus' death is for you. Not nebulously for the world in general, but for you. When you receive it in that moment, what do we do? We pray one of two kinds of prayers. And they're very much like offering prayers. Like this past Sunday, we prayed the post-communion prayer. It says, um, here we present to you ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be what? A living sacrifice. Why? Because I've received the word of God. So the goal with all this, 
with worship in the prayer book tradition before I open it to questions. It is the prayer book's committed to unleashing the word of God to convert your heart. Yes. Have you been converted? Yes. But we might say that there are still yet unconverted regions of your heart that need to be yet exposed. Why? How do I know this? Because unless you're sinless from Monday through Saturday, there's still conversion to be done. All right. Uh, and there's still a word of the gospel to be declared to you to expose your need for Jesus and then to give him to you. So it's to unleash the word of God, to convert your heart and my heart through nothing short of the power of the gospel. What questions do you all have for me? <coughs> Doc, I think you mentioned it um, a couple of months ago. You did a class where you sort of exploded out the uh, morning prayer. I resent the word exploded, well, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I used I, exploded because your, your slideshow was great in that you yeah. boxed it out. And right, it was, right. It was, it was fantastic. Yeah. It was coming from somebody that's I'm totally to joking. Her. Yep. So um, do you have, and I'm just thinking for newcomers, if there be any way that they could access obviously the recording of it, but also yeah. the, the slides. That came yeah, there should be, and there will be. Um, I will make sure they get up, and then I'll communicate with Matt and Fontaine how to communicate to you so that we have it up on a... We have those... It'll be like PDF slideshow kind of thing, and you could sort of follow along. That'd be great. Yeah. That's, uh, that'd be great. And you'll be able to see sort of kind of visuals like what I just did that help go into more detail of our liturgy because the goal is for you to be able to hear the word of God coming at you and be able to respond. And so hopefully even these little tidbits give you a sense of like, how do I engage the wordiness and all these sections and all the up and down? How do I sort of zoom out and see the forest for the trees? Because in liturgical worship, it's easy to miss the forest for the trees. And so what I'm trying to give you is the zoom out and all of a sudden you see that, that the forest is shaped like a cross and God is trying to communicate Christ to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Other questions? I have a question. Yeah. Probably stupid. But, um, no stupid questions. So, so um, I come from a Presbyterian background. Mm-hmm. Um, and so why in the, um, the Lord's Prayer do Presbyterians say forgive us our debts and everyone else says trust us? Yeah. Matt, do you know that kind of historical reason? It's unclear. I think Presbyterians just love okay. precision and arguing. and. I know, I know, right. Yeah, they, there's a, there's theological implications for each word, whether you say debts and trespasses and uh, Presbyterians sometime in the past took their stand on debts and debtors because they felt like it was either more accurate or helped to describe sin a little better. You know, I happen to think that both of them are sort of worthy metaphors, but I don't know that I have a good answer to that question other than that. Interesting, right? Because everybody's in debt. Age, yeah. We right. That's good. That's right. That's right. We've all felt that burden. That's good. That's a good point. Yeah. Good question. What else? Right. I mean, I, I, I mean, granted, thirty-five years of my life I've been in Presbyterian, but I, I, just, I like debts because I think it's, I think it's just very. It's very convicting and weighty, but definitely, I agree. Definitely. Sometimes you have to fight your battles with tradition. Yes. <laughs> what else? 
This is a small question, not about prayer book. Okay. Just in the service, mm-hmm. whoever is going to begin the sermon sits at that back chair. Uh-huh. Is there some significance to the little scrolly things they put their hands on? No. Okay. I mean, not necessarily. Some do and some don't. I think part of the reason that many of us put our hands there is like it's the easiest thing to hang on to. Okay. What What's funny is though, I mean, I, it's interesting that you noticed that because oftentimes I just personally, I put my hands there during, uh, well, I do it a lot of places just to brace myself, but um, it reminds me of horns on the altar, exactly. you know, Which and is why I that's not official, but okay. for me, that's right. kind of my unofficial clinging to the horns of the altar. Uh, as Jesus tells me, He loves me and forgives me. I found my mercy seat, kind of thing. Can you give us your book recommendation? Yes. And, uh, pray this this won't cover all the bases, but if I were to sort of pastorally, how do we how do we as Christians grow in our apprehension of the prayer book? This book uh, by a former dean Paul Zoll and uh, another guy who served here called the Collects of Thomas Cranmer is basically those short prayers, those collects. With a little, de- it's a devotion book. But what I like about it is it engages you with those sections of the of the Book of Common Prayer, those collects, as an entryway into understanding that this that liturgy isn't just meant for us to sort of robotically go through, but it's really meant to tap into our heart. So it's not the only word, but if I were to give you one book, I'd say this short little devotional book called The Collects of Thomas Cranmer would be a wonderful place. If you have questions about maybe books on they give you some history or theology or stuff like that. Come see me. That's the one I'd recommend. Anything else? Tell them the name of your website. My, my, my website? It's, well, it's ZachHicks.com, but I know you want me to say Zachicks.com because, <laughs> because um, it has no K. It's just Z-A-C-H-I-C-K-S. And when I, you know... Bought the domain a while ago. Someone was like, hey, where are all the chicks? And I'm like, that's inappropriate. Um, so, forever it's branded to chicks.com. Lord, have mercy on us all. God's grace and peace be with you. I'm going to go be a part of the other service, but thanks for letting me be a part of this time. Yep.